This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead, and this is Austin Real Estate Investing. Today, we have Justin Rourke here. Justin Rourke's involved in real estate investing in a multitude of ways in the Austin area. Not only does he run Tower Property Management, but he also runs the Ascension Realty Group, and he owns investment properties in Austin. Hey, Justin, how are you? Hey, Jordan, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. So real quick, can you tell us who you are and how you're involved with real estate investing in the Austin area? Okay. Um, well, I am just in brief, in a nutshell, I am a native Austinite. I was licensed in 2009, but I've been working in real estate since 2008. Um, I've been a broker since 2010. Uh, so I kind of went ahead and, and jumped through those hoops uh, just, just to, just to do it. And in 2013, I purchased my first investment property. It was a duplex, um, that I bought two houses since then. Um, and so I'm, I'm active in the, in the, re, uh, residential investment markets. It's, it's a little bit easier to get into. And it's usually everyone's springboard. Um, after seeing how easy managing a duplex was, it made sense to me that maybe I could do this in scale. And with all the work that I was doing as far as, you know, sales and leasing and everything going on at the time, because that was before the market turned in central Texas as far, started, as, far as heating up, um, I thought I could, I could do a better job than all the other property managers out there. And I, I asked my longtime friend, John Martin, uh, to come in with me and I made him 50-50 partner of Ascension. And also we joined up 50-50 with Tower. And so since then, we've been growing a property management company, and uh, we went from basically zero to we're now at 350 plus doors in a matter of six or seven years. You know, the first couple of years are more more uh, incubation period. So really, most of our growth has happened within the last five years, and the lion's share of growth has really happened. I'd say probably this year. This year we started off with 232 units, and now we're over 350. The stretch goal was supposed to be 350. Uh, and we take the team to Vegas and uh, they took that to heart and we're, it's August or September right now. So um, that we've been working with people who didn't want to sell their homes or, you know, landlords who are pro professionals at this. And we're here to kind of bridge that gap for what they do. And what it's kind of spun into is that by virtue of doing a great job and being referral driven, um, eventually we get some organic uh, leads on landlords and they want to start picking up more. They know people who want to pick up more. And so what we're doing right now is uh, we're going out every weekend hunting in the best hunting spots, you know, the areas that are going to get the best returns for what you buy. And, you know, we've basically got an investment group that we say, Hey, who wants, who wants these deals that we found over the weekend? We've done a lot of the due diligence ahead of time. There's stuff to do during the, the option periods, but um, we work with them, we analyze properties, and then we get them in the portfolio, getting them performing. If we need to do value adds, we'll do value adds. 
Um, I've got a number of people who have done the, what is it? The, it's the burr or the rub. I always get it mixed up, uh, but yeah, the burr method. And so we, we've got a number of folks who do that. And so uh, we've been working on kind of growing uh, this behemoth and all of a sudden, you know, with 2020, 2021, um, someone threw a bunch of gasoline on this campfire. So we're, we're really raging right now and it's, it's kind of a wild ride. So that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah, that's awesome. I skipped out all the hard part. Yeah. Just for everybody listening, I work down the hall from these guys and they're going after it every day. I hear you guys carrying on and having a good time and, and working hard in the various offices you have in our main office there with Keller Williams. So I, I know you guys are getting after it. I know you're doing the deal. I know you're working hard to make sure this happens for the landlords and both the tenants. You know, I hear you guys treat the tenants great. Correct. I think that's super important for landlords is take care of your tenants. You're very right. Happy, happy tenants, happy landlords. Um, I recognize that some people are more challenging um, to keep happy. And usually it's a, usually these acute situations, once you can take care of them there, you can usually get them to where they need to be. But we've been handed so many interesting challenges and hurdles over this last year, especially with eviction moratoriums and everything else involved. Um, and I've watched on both sides uh, the, the detriments for that. So it, it's hard to keep everybody happy and everything. I, I, think, I think what's interesting is that uh, a lot of people, landlords included, um, everyone is so conditioned towards the sales element of it, right? The sales process, which is short timelines, high liability, high, you know, just at high tensions. And the one thing that I found for property management, which a lot of, I found a lot of naysayers um, in the very beginning of like, why do you want to do that? It just seems like it's a, it's not a lot of money and it's not a lot of return. It's a lot of headache. And why do you want to deal with tenants? It's like, that's not, it's not that bad. Like at this point in time, we've really developed the, the leathery skin to kind of handle, you know, some of the harsh criticisms. And we've also found really great systems to make sure that people are are happy at the end of the day. Not only do we dispatch, but we also have someone whose job is just to basically go in and make sure that at the end of it, everything is smooth and uh, smoothed over. Everyone's good. If we need to, you know, sprinkle some love, we'll sprinkle some love, i.e., in the form of a gift gift basket or a or a gift card, whatever it whatever it needs to be to kind of get people to where they are. And we've that's why we've got real, a lot of great reviews. I mean, we do have like maybe two one stars, but that's usually we'll fire back. We'll say, Hey, tell us more about what was going on. And we empathize with your situation, but it's a hard line to walk. Um, so we, we have a lot of fun. We try to keep everyone happy. Um, and it's, uh, someone told me the other day, um, not on our team, but in other ways, you can't make everyone happy. And in my opinion, I felt like that, that was not trying hard enough. You know, you can't make everybody happy. Maybe, maybe there's some truth to that, but you can certainly, aim as if as if you can and that's that's really why we're so referral driven um i think we, we don't buy portfolios so that's that's a part of our value proposition um we're, we were founded in grit so that's that's where we're at awesome so you started yourself by living in a duplex which i think is an awesome strategy that everybody should take advantage of if they're able to um what attracted you to that and why did you choose to, obviously you're from Austin but why did you choose to start buying rental real estate in Austin um rental real I mean if you're it was kind of my number one goal on the way in um I wanted to start building a number uh, a portfolio 
because you know when you're doing real estate sales and if we're speaking to it depends on who, which class we're talking about real estate uh you know professional versus real estate investor or the the combination thereof but um everyone needs to find some way of of um you know, creating passive income, at least without too much work, too much hassle. And so for me on my way in as being a green agent, I wanted to start doing that as soon as possible. It was really tough during that, you know, 2008 through 2012 period. We didn't really start to see the market turn around until 2012, 2013. I think they say it bottomed out in 2009, but you're not going to feel that right away. Uh, at the time from what I found. And so I really wanted to get something as soon as I could. And I knew that as soon as we started to gain traction again and the, and the economy was going to pick up and Austin being at that time, um, there was a lot of people who flocked here because of such a great job market. I knew that that market was going to just boom. And after um, purchasing my property in 2013 and 2014, um, I had boosted the rents up by about three or $400, nullified all the deficiencies and uh, so like that, and then I got in through, like, so we talked about the FHA loan, which um, they treat home sales uh, for the non-initiated. Um, they treat home sales as if you, like, you can buy up to one or four units. So that means up to a, a fourplex at the time, if you wanted to, through an FHA loan, if your credit wasn't that great, and if you didn't have that much money to put down, their, you know, their minimum was three and a half percent. For me, just getting started, that was a great opportunity. I, I got in with the FHA loan. I lived in one side. And then eventually I moved out and then refinanced into a conventional loan because I had a little more money at that point. Uh, and it started just just kind of snowballing from there. It, it takes a long time um, to, to get that going. But that's a springboard that I saw a lot of people do, including some other you know real estate investors in this hallway who are brokers. Like that was the FHA loan lead-in was easy, but now you can find conventional loans at 3% as well. So really it just comes down to having good credit and, and available cash. And with the current market, that's that, that even more so. I mean, the credit less, but the, having available cash to buy in because we're seeing rising sales prices and rents are rising too, but they're always going to be the, you know, the kid brother following that sales market you know it's not it's not going to be a like-for-like -like increase uh, it's always going to be delayed on the rental side by six months to a year or so because of the length of lease terms yeah absolutely and that's something i've noticed in the austin areas rents are still it's still a great deal to live in most places in austin people may complain <laughs> about it who are from here but people moving here from anywhere else see these rents for a single family house you're thinking, man, I can get a three-bedroom, two-bath house in a nice area for two grand. That's an amazing deal. I was paying that for a one-bedroom apartment, Chicago or some other area. So absolutely. But my belief is those will not stay there for long. They absolutely haven't over the last 10 years. If you look at historical rent trends, they've gone up a lot. Mm -hmm. So don't expect them to stay where they're at. Um, I think we're going to keep seeing rents rising. And that's just more the reason to, to buy in now and start holding your rental properties because those rents are going to go up. Right. And a lot of investors, you know, especially ones who are numbers driven, this is kind of a hard market for them because they want to seek exceptional returns. But you, when you're in our market and it's one of the hottest markets, if not the hottest market, um, it's, you know, you on some degree, you're acting on faith, on faith just a little bit, and but you're not going to see these exceptional returns without an exceptional trade-off as well. So you have to be okay with, 
you have to be okay with more mediocre um, cap rates, but you know, cap rates only focus on year one um, and it doesn't take into account other things involved either. So um, I don't know, I, I, think, I think as far as being a, a great market, it's still a great market to invest in. Um, I'm still expecting another, I'm expecting another crunch coming this January. I'm, we're already starting to see it. We saw a little bit of like over, not oversupply. It, it never happened that way, but like we saw a little bit of a glut here in July, August. And so we were able to kind of pick up for our investors. Uh, I think we were able to get about five or six contracts or so, I think just, just in that little short period. Um, and, but now I'm starting to see it shrink again, new active listings are coming down, but meanwhile, we have this steady burn of demand, even though it's not during the peak season type of surge. Um, but I'm expecting that the available inventory is going to crunch down. We're going to hit January again. Everyone's going to hit their new year resolution to get a new property. And oh, you're going to see a flood of people in the market. So, and when that happens again, you know, this year we saw in a lot of areas, we saw maybe about, you know, a hundred to, you know, in some cases, you know, $400 rent increases in certain, in certain zones, in certain areas, even duplex areas. Um, in the area that, that I was surprised to see 1600, uh, my leasing coordinator was able to get 1900 for a two, two bedroom, two bathroom duplex. And that, and that was still during peak period. That was not without sacrificing tenant quality, which, you know, a lot of people can can thump their chest on getting exceptional rents, but what's the tenant quality like and and everything else? Sometimes you make sacrifices just to just to appease the almighty dollar. But um, I think that's going to happen again. So where the rents are right now, it's not going to be that same way next year, in my opinion. I think only more and more people are going to come here because we can't we can't address the number one problem, which is the supply issue, and it's not distribution issues. And material cost issues this year were the, were one thing. Those are going to get those are going to smooth out, I think. Um, but still, with having to navigate the city, um, that's the challenging part. But more people are kind of buying in the surrounding areas now, and the wagon wheel around Austin. So we'll see. Those are, those those towns are going to basically going to grow up really fast, and that's that's going to be interesting to watch how how they grow up and what where where do people flock to to stay affordable or just to even get their foot in the door. So yeah. investors need to be more cool with, with checking out secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah, and you mentioned something there that I've seen work out very well is people who find those affordable spaces and buy property there. If you bought in Round Rock mm -hmm. two or three years ago, you were doing amazing. You know, because Round Rock two mm -hmm. or three years ago was very affordable compared to a lot of areas in Austin. If you bought in East Austin five years ago, it was very affordable compared to a lot of areas in Austin. If you just follow the affordability that's reasonably located, I think you're going to do really, really well. That's been what's worked well for me. Mm -hmm. But I think if you continue to do that, you're going to continue to do well. You know, has to be affordable, has to be in a reasonably nice area, has to be reasonably well located to a lot of different amenities. But you can do that. I think you're going to do really, really well. So not. not I agree. Not even I agree. About the interesting thing about that point that you made is the, is where everyone wants to be around Tesla, right? Like what was there? What was there beforehand? Um, which you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dog anyone's community, but um, there wasn't a lot there. But as soon as Elon said, "I'm moving Tesla to Austin," everyone in the dog wanted to jump into to Dell Valley. 
and, which I've heard some Californians call it Del Valier, which I'm like, Mm-mm, that is not how we call things here. <laughs> uh, but like everyone when the dog wants to be over there and even then, I mean, it, luckily enough, there's plenty of land, but again, it's going to take time. And so people have to make their choices on how long they want to wait to get to get that unit of inventory, or at least the, uh, some, some landlords are, not a lot of landlords want to go into lower income areas, historically lower income areas for all the things that come along with low income. Um, and so I, I think it's really interesting that, that, yeah, what was affordable then is now like amazing now, but it, it's always in hindsight. And, and it's interesting how, how the market reacts on, on just their, their frenzy mode. You know what I mean? Uh, are you seeing the same thing in, in uh, the Dell Valley area with Austin's Colony, stuff like that? Oh, yeah. I haven't sold a few in Austin's Colony. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, you go over there even recently and there's not there's not a lot of infrastructure yet, but they're building it. They're building gas mm-hmm. stations. They're building convenience stores. They're building all that stuff. So I'm here in East Austin. You know, like you talked about, a lot of investors come to you and they want to be in the best school districts. I don't want to be in the best school districts because I'm not going to get the appreciation there that I that I want to see. If I'm in the best school districts, I'm in the best areas already. I'm going to pay a premium for that. If I'm in East Austin in a street that looks kind of rough a few years ago where people didn't want to go just yet then, but I buy that house and they tear down three houses across the street and build brand new houses, my mm-hmm. ratty street now looks great. That's happened with me in East Austin twice. I bought properties on streets. It didn't look so great, but I've bought them. I've rehabbed them, held on to them. People have come in and taken out a lot of the nasty stuff there. And I've made a lot of money doing that. So that's my personal strategy. I like to go into the areas that's, that are well-located, that are more affordable now, but don't have any reason that they are other than they just don't look so great. And I think you can do really well doing that. Of course, you go in and you buy the, the house in the best school districts, you're, that's probably safer. You know, that's like buying a, a three cap CVS. You know, you, you're, you're hedging your bets a little bit there because you're in a great school district. People are always going to rent that. Have you wanted to be part of GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, but just haven't hit that millionaire status yet? Well, now you can, not even being a millionaire, by joining our new program, GoBundance Emerge. My name's Jamie Gruber, creator of GoBundance Emerge and member of the GoBundance community. And now you can join. GoBundance.com slash emerge. GoBundance.com slash emerge. Use code Jordan for $100 off this 12-week goal-setting program and mastermind that'll propel you to being a whole-life millionaire. You want safety, low risk, low risk, low return, though. High risk, high return uh, in those regards as well. I, I think I think the way I think the way to navigate that, and you've already done it. You've already you've already tiptoed on it uh, with finding those up and coming emerging markets. Um, is is time time lowers that risk, yeah. right? And, and, and your horizon. And every every time I get a new landlord in, my one of my first questions is is what is your time horizon on this property? Like how long are we? It's not like how long are you going to employ me? That's not the question. The question is how long are you going to hold this thing? And, and, and that tells me, it tells me a little bit about, it tells me a little bit about the, um, the landlord. And give me one second. I want to hit my uh, cellular data so I don't get any phone calls while we're at it.
I'm sorry, Jordan, my bad. Well, uh, we'll come as we may, but um, I think uh, I think holding holding properties for a longer period allows the market to grow, at least in markets that we're really familiar with. Like Austin, the kind of the cool thing about Austin is it's since I, you know, I'm, I'm a native here and um, it's done nothing but grow since I've, you know, been of cognizance in, in, in this area and also joining in real estate. It's only done great. And that's one that's an awesome thing to kind of set your watch to. Um, I'm curious what what down markets will look like. The last one that we really had was during the recession and we kind of plateaued sort of, but really we just kind of held back uh, this big surge. So um, I don't know. It's nice with Austin. I think it's harder in other markets as the Metro gets more dense and expands out. I mean, who knows before too long, people are going to start looking at Giddings. They're going to start, if they're not already, um, people are starting to look at Bastrop. Bastrop's starting to kind of feel this wave. I wonder what it will be like in those communities um, versus Austin in particular. We, we should qualify um, Austin versus the metro as a whole versus some of these, these sub-markets. I mean, that, that, will be, that, will, that will remain to be seen. But it sounds like when you're on the east side, you're going for tried and true, still within the urban core. And those, you know, with the way that our city's gone, it's always been a very downtown-centric uh, community. Um, I, I see nothing but growth right there. I, I can't, I can't see it do, doing much else. It can, it can top out, but you know, people, if people want to be there, they'll be there. And then the rising incomes for that lower area are going to then change, make a play on those school districts. So if you're buying in for school districts to begin with, then you're kind of, you're kind of coming in late to the game. You're looking for like a late age maturity level in a community when really as an investor, you want that long haul. Ideally, you make money on the acquisition, the hold, and the disposition of a property. And if you're just kind of looking for like that later stage, you're, there's not a lot of juice left in that melon, right? Would you agree? Sure. Or am I off on a tangent? And I, I don't know how you, you figure out all this stuff. Something that I've noticed, so I'm right on the east side, right off Bloom. Um, they just replaced okay. I with a, a liberal arts magnet school. The difference in the people that are dropping kids off compared to people, it's all all Mercedes and, and that type of stuff dropping kids off nowadays. Absolutely, that's going to help the property values around here because people are going to want to live close to their school and they say, oh, you know, we've got 800000 a million dollars to spend on a house. You know, let's, let's tear this down and build a new one. So absolutely, I don't think either of us are saying school districts, being around good schools is a bad thing. It's not. But you need to find no, 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 totally. Yeah, to add value. It ju it just depends on what that investor is wanting and what I don't know that 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 present. Let me ask you, Jordan. What what do you do when you're in that situation? You have an investor who's like, "This is really important to me." How do you have that conversation with them when and I'm hate to flip the camera around, but like, how do you have that conversation with them when you're like, "Hey, I want to educate you on like why this may not be." Yes, it's great to have good schools, but you're not living there this isn't for your children. You're doing this as a, as a business venture. You need yeah. to think of it this way. How do you, how do you approach the conversation? So I think, yeah, for me and when I'm talking to investors, so I always you know, talk about the numbers. Hey, let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the numbers on this property over here versus the numbers on this property in this amazing school district. This property in the amazing school district doesn't look too good. You know, property over here, it has all this value add potential. The number is going to be a lot better. You're probably going to rent to younger people. 
you know, most of the areas we're talking about that are growing real quickly are younger areas. I don't think most people mm -hmm. are moving to the east side for the school districts. They're moving to the east side just close to downtown. So I, I help right. reframe that for people of, hey, look, look for something that's not related to schools. These guys, their four roommates are going to live in this house. They don't care about school districts. They care about being close to the cool taco shop, you know, being close to downtown. So I help people try to look for opportunity and compare the numbers. Your 4%, 5% return on this house in Round Rock compared to maybe you're going to get an 8% return on this house in the east side or just south of Austin. And it, you're, you just have to think about what are my goals? Why am I doing this? Like, like you're saying, low risk, low return. If you're just doing it for the long run, you want to buy an asset, it's going to pay itself off and it's going to appreciate over time. You know, that that's the place for you, the good school district. But if you're doing it to get out of your job or you want to grow your wealth more rapidly than uh, a three cap, you're going to need to look elsewhere for that. And you always have to think about that. You know, everybody gets told, Oh, buy this, buy that, buy these certain properties in these locations, but those don't always work out with their goals. Very true. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't work out with their. No, I call it. I call it style points, or like what what things for them make make the most sense as far as like where they when people when investors treat it as if it's the, a place that they're going to live in. Now, one rule, one suggestion that I have as well in, in picking some properties too, um, whereas versus only going by the numbers, I would say to some investors, if I'm being candid, um, I'll say, you know, think about this. If everything else goes belly up in your life, if you're going to pick a property as well, you might you might think to pick a property that you might be comfortable living in at some point if that if the, if like your world crumbles like and the, and that I usually leave that line in you know I keep that in my little pocket just in case I see something that an investor is going like drooling over but it it's it you know it's definitely you know a C class property need a lot of work and I can't get them past. I can't get them past looking at that because one of the hardest conversations to have is, is um, even though the numbers look great here, there's going to be a lot of work or you're going to deal with uh, tenant quality issues or you're going to be dealing with some other things which are going to manifest into costs or expenses that you can, they're variable, they're not fixed. So you can look at some fixed things, but the variable things are, that's the unknown, that's the crystal ball. And I can know what my gut tells me, but sometimes I want to, I want to take, landlords in the right direction make sure that they're not gonna land in a headache or choose uh there's nothing wrong with properties with well one one should be generally concerned about a property with foundation issues but it depends on what's been done to it to to bolster that and what the landlord wants out of the property are they are they you know concerned about resale and what the effects might have on it or is it mainly they want to they want to get great rents out of that and renters probably don't care about foundation issues but um, depending upon what it is, you know, we want to we want to guide them in the right direction. So it it's all situational, but I, I try to I try to be the headlights on the road for my clients when I'm doing those things. So not every not everything is dollar driven, but not everything is also st style points. And it's the in between that matters the most. Is my point? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think that you know it's easy to get caught up in the spreadsheet until you have to start operating the property. Even if you are operating with a property manager, I'm about to get rid of some properties that I have that are class C, there's complete pain. 
uh, property managers have operated them the whole time, but it's still a hassle mm -hmm. for me to deal with this. So that, that's great advice. I think, yeah, don't, don't just look for the perfect property, the perfect area, but also don't just focus on the spreadsheet. There is some in between there. You know, if you're just focusing on the mm -hmm. spreadsheet, you're buying in war zones and you're going to deal with more headaches than you can ever imagine. Very true. Yeah. Not to have happen during our during our conversation, um, but anyways, the what I would say also what you kind of hit on was um, your team of who you have as a real estate investor. I think having having a solid teams there, your real estate broker uh, or agent, your property manager, um, any contractors that you want to keep on hand, those people can attorneys, accountants. Those people can, as an investor, I would say, have those things together. A lot of those things can be rolled into one. If you have a good property management company, then some of those things are going to be, you know, stuck together. But um, that can make the difference between that. But um, certainly one reason why we got into, got into property management was because there was not a lot of people doing it at a high level, embracing technology, um, bringing customer, the customer service side. What I learned in Keller Williams um, as far as servicing clients um, but they didn't do property management, I thought I could bring this to that element of, of, of property management and try to perform at a really high level, high degree of customer service. It means a lot for communication, a lot of headaches, but um, that's, that's where we found a niche, just doing, doing the dirty work and doing the dirty work well um, and to a high, to a, to a high degree. I, I have seen a handful of companies that I aspire to to stand beside and even surpass. Um, but there's a lot of companies out there, property managers who um, just, they're either understaffed or they're underfunded because they ran their numbers too lean, tried to bring in land and, and chop their costs when maybe they didn't know what their dollar cost per property was to do a good job. And, um, you know, some of it's kind of, kind of like they'll take the hit on the way in to make more money in the long run, but basically they're just setting fires behind them, in my opinion. So yes, the team, the team matters on that regard, especially when you're saying like, even though with a property manager, I'm not, I don't want to, I want to be careful about what I, what I, uh, what I plant in this conversation as far as my business or anybody looking to look me up afterwards. But um, property managers do need room to, to do well and to do good work. Micromanaging the manager is, Probably not a great idea, but they're like checking in, checking in makes a lot of sense. And also looking at your numbers, is the property performing or is it not? I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, th I think that having that team together is really key. Yeah. I think it's easy to think that things are going to happen quicker than they do. You know, you, you want to flip a switch and have everything happen right away. And you just have to pick up the trends over time. So you know, I like you talking about looking at the numbers there and, and checking in regularly, but you're not going to call your property manager and you're not going to be cash flowing tomorrow if you're at a deficit today. So, right. And you have to look at long-term numbers because mm -hmm. your upfront costs on, on investment properties, you're looking at the acquisition, you're looking at inspections, you're looking at closing costs. And then it comes down to, well, what do you need to bring the property up to, you know, and, and what we call a baseline um, you want to bring the property up to acceptable uh, market standards as far as livability. It doesn't need to be Airbnb quality. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Got um, 
as head of a team of like 11 people, I'd never get a moment's peace. So, so far what we've had has been great. Um, But anyways, what was I saying? I lost my train of thought. Oh, your, your costs on the way, your costs on the way in. Right. Um, And, and having investors who are prepared for that investors out there, if you're listening, you need to have like some good sources of funds in the very beginning, because you're going to run lean in the very beginning of the property. It takes a while to get momentum and get it through the door and get it leased. Once it's leased, that's on autopilot, but it doesn't happen right away after after you close on the property sale. So um, I think that's I think that's important for investors to know. Like it, it's going to take a little while and some patience. And as first time investor goes, your first one's going to be your hardest one. Typically, uh, every other one should be easier and faster after that, ideally. So going going back to that, you know, obviously getting the property up to snuff, stuff happens over time. Do you suggest or recommend any sort of reserves for your clients? We always have reserves uh, for, for at least for what we need as a property management company to operate with uh, landlord funds versus ours or anybody else's. Um, my thought would be what I normally suggest to landlords, if they're not going to do a, an LLC entity or LP or whatever they need to do to legally protect themselves, um, to avoid liability in certain situations, obviously get insurance. You're going to need that. Um, but um, I would say create a bank account specific to your property and have that be the the pass through on on all funds coming in and out. So that way, a it's easier to keep track of expenses. You don't want to merge it with your common bank account. Um, but I like to I suggest to landlords to have a a property specific bank account. And then um, pad it. I mean, I would say peel off a percentage of, of funds each month until you reach maybe around five thousand or so. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't, and you have to get there immediately. Um, but if you're peeling off two fifty each month, maybe maybe sacrificing sacrificing. It's not even you're sacrificing your return. It's just like where are you siloing your your where are you siloing your return. But I would say keep it keep it in that account until um, at least you reach five thousand. If if you have that capacity, it depends on how lean you're running. But five thousand should be able to take out a lion's share of air conditioner replacement. Easily, it'll do a water heater. It'll be probably half the cost of a roof. Uh, foundation probably half the cost. So it may take some time. At this point in time, my uh, I think one of my properties has at least about. Uh, because we can set the reserves, it has about 2K. Like I'm, I have plenty of cash. I'm not too worried, but um, I do keep higher level reserves on my properties and I do the other ones just so that way, if I need to, if something unexpected happens, I can cover it without losing my arm. Um, especially if you, if people are in a hurry, running and gunning, going from investment to investment, investment, the worst thing that you can do is just like be over, over leveraged, overextended and not have those, those cash funds there. And then Calamity happens, snow apocalypse, pipes busting. No one thought it would happen in 40 years, or a pandemic, an eviction moratorium that sides on behalf of tenants versus landlords uh, who are dependent upon the income just as much as tenants are dependent upon the property. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good idea to have reserves if you can help it. it, it that, that's a that's a landlord discipline type of thing, though. Depends on if they want it. Sure, landlords and just. You know, for everyday life, I think it's not a bad idea to have some reserves. Stuff happens. There's a snow apocalypse. There's a pandemic. You know, you might lose your job. You need to have some reserves set aside, especially if you're going to be a landlord. Um, especially. Yeah. 
Justin, could you tell us some advice you've given people on how to avoid a bad deal here in Austin? So, you know, just maybe one piece of advice you give people, hey, look out for this to avoid a bad deal. To avoid a bad deal. Number one, we, I think we probably kicked this horse enough is always look at your numbers. Um, but to avoid a bad deal, um, do a solid job on due diligence. That means running your numbers. That means getting your inspections done. Don't, uh, as an investor, don't skimp on your inspections. Um, you would be surprised. Do your final walkthroughs. Do all those things because you never know what could happen in that. And you have, with how tight this market has been, um, a lot of people have been sacrificing some time uh, on the contract, uh, on the sales contract. To they'll say, "I'll take whatever you know, come what may," and that that works as long as you have deep enough pockets. But let's just say that you know other people are out there. I would say, still, even though we have tight timelines, even though you may not have an option period. You should still have an inspection done. You should still, you know, if you're concerned about the foundation, go have a foundation company out there. If you're concerned about the roof, go do it. Be prepared and do the homework. Do the homework, all the homework, as much as you can before you close. Because after you close, it's yours. And that's when you close is when you should enact your game plan, not when you set up your game. Not, that's not the point to set it up. So I'd say do your due diligence during that contract phase. Yeah. No, I, I love that with due diligence and, you know, take your due diligence seriously. I, I've had some experience where, you know, people have told me things and I've kind of just overlooked it said, oh yeah, it's probably not that big of a deal. But if an inspector's telling you, hey, you know, this needs to be fixed, this is actually a problem. And they're telling you that face-to-face, -face, probably listen to them. You've hired them for a reason. So um, mm -hmm know how to interpret inspections, know how to do due diligence. I think it's going to save you a lot of money. Um, Jordan, can I ask you a question? What, what is your, like, let's just say that you're going to, you're going to invest in the property, rental property, doesn't matter where, um, what sort of, what sort of series of folks do you line up whenever you're, whenever you're looking? I'm curious. Uh, what is it? Sorry, sorry to flip the interview here, but well, I, I, as, investor Absolutely. to investor what's what sort of lineup do you say i want to ram you guys through this house and and see what you do what what are your what are, what are you what do you do in that in that phase so always i, I do a home inspection so i have a, a local home inspector go look at the property but i i also like to look at the sewer line so you, you need to oh, make oh, sure nice. the sewer lines taken care of a lot of times on older properties these are cast iron even if they're not cast iron if they're PVC, but they're underneath the slab, that's really expensive to fix. So I always have them scope or sewer line. If I've seen any, any sort of movement in the foundation, I have a foundation inspector come out there and look at the property. And I just really go through all that. If the roof looks like it's even a little older, I'm going to have a roofer come out and look at the property. But for me, the basics are always home inspector, sewer inspection and foundation inspection, if I see it. I regularly spend $700 to $1,000 on inspections. I think it's worth every penny. And that's what you prep your, your clients for, right? You're gonna say, so you're gonna spend this, not just the base inspection. Is the sewer inspection an, an always, or is that, or is that um, local to the area that you're in, or age of the home? 
age of the home mostly you know if it's older than mid 80s usually i want a sewer inspection done in the 80s and above typically i've seen them be okay again i'm not a home inspector i'm not an expert on sewers but i don't worry about them so much if it's if it's a 95 home which i don't actually don't own anything newer than 84 um I'm not going to worry about it too much, but we did a sewer inspection mm. on a duplex in Maynard that I had one under contract. My girlfriend had the neighboring one under contract. And oh, nice. But the sewer was destroyed. You know, it had all messed up, water all throughout it, wasn't draining properly, needed complete replacement. It was going to be like $20,000. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's actually a great point for like when you're looking out in those emerging markets what types of homes are you going to be dealing with and are you going to be dealing with a lot of new development or not you're actually going to be looking at there's more liability potentially if you go to those emerging markets if you're looking at pre-existing inventory versus what's brand new so that's that's a that's a great point there to our previous topic of like yeah you should you need to be more prepared in those emerging markets of, of places that because they're going to be older houses typically Oh, yeah. And if um, with the due diligence, when we're on the due, due diligence theme, if you're looking at any sort of property with an HOA, do a lot of due diligence on that HOA. I've seen it not go well with HOAs. Just they look good. They don't take care of things the way they should. And then special assessments get loaded on. It can just be a real hassle. So do your due diligence on the HOA. Talk to people at the HOA. Look through their records. Look through their, their balances. Make sure their stuff's put together. Very right. I've dealt with a with a good handful of HOA issues this year. One deal that we just closed uh, yesterday, um, they sent us over the budget, and the whole budget was expenses, and there was no income reported. And so we raised some red flags with the uh, with the agent the listing agent, I said, Hey, will you please like the, the HOA wouldn't talk to us and they wouldn't because we weren't the owners. And, um, and so they said, Hey, have the, have the owner reach out to us. We've given you the resale certificate and the package. That's all we're entitled to give you. We wanted to get the, the listing side to submit an email, but we had trouble getting them to comply. They were very, very reluctant, surprisingly, weirdly, especially when they paid for the resale certificate, yeah. you know, um, and uh, there was no income being reported, and uh, clearly, clearly would have to be a clerical error. But you want to know those things. You want to look through the budget. Whenever title sending out that, um, you know, all their title commitments with the schedule A, B, C, and D, like read read that stuff. See what's see what's going on there. That that actually is really important. And we also had one situation at the beginning of the year with a condo, which I will actually, if I would give one bit of advice to avoid calamity, unless you could pick up. Sorry, sorry, I'm giving you two because I already said due diligence, but um, I don't really like condos as investment properties um, unless you can get them at an amazing price and you have a time machine because you would need to get them at, uh, at a time to where they're super dirt cheap to where rents dramatically like, you know, dramatically uh, dwarf. Uh, the HOA dues, because those HOA dues are just going to take a bite out of your lunch. And then you're right. If there are special assessments, that is something that you, you can't get out of really, unless you, unless you sell the property. So I feel like, I feel like condos are, 
harder for me to recommend unless unless the the chemistry is just right on that thing. Do you agree or disagree? I'm curious if there's any other opinions. It totally it, for for me it totally depends on the on the HOA and on the condo. You know, so I've seen some yeah. condo deals. I've also seen some that you know yeah that the HOA fees are just going to eat away all of your cash flow or Conversely, the HOA isn't putting enough reserves away where it's probably going to come back and bite you sometime in the future. So yeah, it all yep. depends on the HOA. You're basically auditing the property management company when you're auditing your HOA. True. So yeah. Yeah. Community management is something we've considered getting into because there's a lot of people who just do it poorly, but it's yeah. it's also a challenge. Too, and I don't know what I'd have to commit to as a community manager. Showing up to HOA meetings would probably make me want to like. I probably want to jump off our roof before I before I want to go to those HOA meetings. But um, there's a dude. There's a niche there. There's an opportunity there for people who are just sleeping on the job. And and that sale that I just mentioned is a case in point. Among not having income, no reserves were mentioned either. And so that's where it made it really frustrating for us to take a big risk. And l- luckily enough, we have. Luckily enough, we have other, we have at this point in time with 350 plus properties, um, we have, we had other properties in that community and we, we, I knew the books, I knew the books were wrong because, you know, for some of these, we have to take care of HOA dues. Um, and so I know the income was coming in. I knew the books were off, but uh, I would be highly concerned in any, in any other sort of situation, if it was a brand new community or condo community, we had one condo that we were selling that the community manager, the treasurer of it, that the, in January, we, we got under contract in, in December. And in January, we got wind just during kind of the, at the same time that the HOA docs came out, um, that the treasurer made off with all the funds in, in all the reserve accounts wow. and just like skipped town, went to Mexico. Yeah, another, another reason it's like someone else, as a condo versus like a single family home, I, I'm less, I'm less concerned about that. There's, there's bills there, but, um, but usually it's a little bit different of a scenario, but uh, with condos, they can stop you from selling the property. They can charge you special assessment. It's someone else who hold someone else is in charge of that bank account rather than you as the landlord. So but it's anything. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of HOAs depending upon the situation. They can be, good, they can be bad. Um, that would be another point that I would that I would mention off through the previous question. Sorry, I deviated, but I, it, it's important if I'm going to make a recommendation. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of recommendations, what's your best advice for somebody looking to invest in Austin for the first time? So they haven't done it before. Maybe they're from the Bay Area. Maybe they're from Round Rock. What are you telling somebody that wants to invest in Austin for the first time? Hey, guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing, and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Be patient. Um, You're going to bang your head up against the wall. Um, I already made my point about due diligence. Um, And be be prepared to be aggressive uh, with with your offer strategy. Um, you need to have your right team. You need to have your right real estate broker. Um, though having those steps in place can can eliminate some issues to where I would feel more confident about being aggressive with my offer strategy. And just what we've seen this year, you have to be aggressive. Even now, like with with the inventory contracting as new new active listings are decreasing, um, 
we saw a, a blip to where we could breathe and not have to like throw a thousand dollars on us or option money. Um, but I'd say be aggressive, have money on hand. I think that coming in and expecting that you're going to be able to pay well, a uh, single family residence is for, for financing is going to be 20% down. But I know a lot of people are who are having to do 25% down, especially if they have more than one. Um, so I would say, make sure you have all the funds there. That, that'd be my biggest thing is that, that it's, it's going to be really challenging to purchase if you don't have enough available cash right now. It's, it's just the, a hard market to get into and the prices are going up. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't have the money, probably, and you know, you just touched on that. I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, people, there's so much talk out there about low and no money down real estate investing. Now you don't need to have any money. But I would say, especially if you're new, make sure you've got your, your money together. Make sure you've got control over your finances. Make sure you're going the right direction financially to get into real estate investing. Maybe once you get to having 10 properties, you can find a, a no or low money down way to do it. And you've got people that will invest with you because they're confident in you. They see your financial management. They see your finances are in order. They see you're doing great with real estate. But maybe work on getting your finances in order first before you start trying to jump into real estate. I just don't see it go well if you don't have your money together. It's hard to run lean unless you're, it's hard to run lean unless you're trying the strategy of, I'm going to buy it as a personal residence. And then after the, the allotted time within whatever sort of loan stipulations that you sign at closing, you then step out and then start trying to lease it. Because I think they want you in there within 90 days. And I think you have to be there for about a year or so. I, I forget. I haven't read that stuff in a bit. But um, that's a way to try to keep it under wraps without having to throw a bunch of money down. Um, but then at the same time, you're going to have to refi again later on, at least to get your monthly payment down. Like it's always this juxtaposition about how much you put down. So you're, for your barriers of entry versus what your return is going to be. And you have to kind of have that, that strategy mapped out. I've been toying with the idea of getting with some private bankers though. Um, and if you do have like solid foundations and solid finances, instead of talking to, you know, traditional private lenders, um, if you show that you have a knack for it and you start getting to that higher level, that's where I think talking with a private banker can be really key. If you can show some some assets, they may give you, if you don't have all the cash, but you have a, a sign of showing that like my my books are in order. They're not written on the back of a cocktail napkins. Again, having a good property manager, your book should be nice and tight um, and you should be able to pr produce reports easily. Um, if you brought all those to a, a, like a, a private banker, they might be willing to let you use their funds to go make it happen and may, may give you great terms to, to go do all those things. And that will turn you into a cash buyer essentially versus having to finance and play the underwriting game. Cash still bears some weight here, but because uh, lenders are so, you know, lending is in credit is so ubiquitous. Like it kind of, it kind of took away the weight of the gold, but now I think, I think uh, as a goal of cash, but now I think that it's a little bit easier to, I think cash is a little bit easier to, to make happen. I think people want to not deal with appraisals, especially with the way that this market is. Yeah. Two years ago or a year or two ago, I think that uh, having cash versus a, a loan, I think a seller would just say, I'll, I'll take the larger sum, whatever it is. I don't care if it's financing or not. Um, now with runaway prices, I think cash cash is back to king. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that the, you can have a lot of advantages if you have cash. So you can figure out how to get other people's cash. Great. But in the beginning, I truly believe in yeah. cash. So um, probably get your finances in order before real estate becomes your sole focus. So, Justin, you know, you, probably the number one barrier to entry. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, whereas you could get stocks or whatever else that's more liquid, uh, real estate, real estate has higher barriers to entry, a little more, well, risk is, is, I don't know. That's a, that's a different beast, but yeah, I think, I think as far as people getting started, they need to have all those ducks and ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. So you guys have built a pretty impressive business there. Um, obviously you're pretty well educated in real estate. Do you have any favorite business or mindset books you've read to learn a lot of this stuff? Oh, well, behind me at my desk, as far as I have, let's see here. I have the complete guide to real estate finance for investment properties by Burgess. Okay. That would be one that I recommend. And I, to be honest, when I first got it, got started in real estate, um, even when I was taking licensure courses, I was reading that book because it was gifted to me at Christmas time. Yeah. And so I was reading that and hoping to find out a little bit more. Um, I read it once. It didn't make sense. I read it again a couple of years later as being an agent and doing deals. Didn't make sense. Um, read it again uh, as a property manager and it started really clicking. And then I started taking some uh, some finance courses and then everything started working. And then that's where I like, I, instead of trying to seek out tool and investment calculators and tools online, I eventually got to the point that I can start doing my own using just Excel. Like if you understand the term, it, it's not easy stuff, uh, but if you can start to understand the terms and follow the math, um, it's, it's an amazing tool that not a lot of, a lot of people are scared to touch. I remember how many uh, real estate agents uh, are just, completely scared of math in the licensure courses. They're like, don't worry. There's only like two or three math questions. It's like, that's what we do. I mean, as, as investors, as, as anybody, like if you can't, I mean, if you can't handle some, some degree of math, I, I, I would want higher bars for our industry. And I don't know what it's like for, for other regions or States, but um, yeah, certainly um, that would be a good one. The, the complete guide to real estate finance, for investment properties. That'd be the number one. There's, there's other, there's other things too, but you have to have an aggregate of education. One book's not going to solve it all, but as far as being an investor, that's my tome. Love that. Actually not heard of that book. So we'll put that in the show notes and guys, can oh. grab that book, check that out. You might find it on your desk in the day or so. All so right, I'll take it. Uh, I'll, Slip I'll it on the door. Oh, good, good. I have I have office privileges. Um, well, very good, man. What else? What else can I answer for you? you no, know, bigger question here is you know you guys have a lot of businesses going. You've got Tower Property Management. You've got Ascension Realty Group. How can people get a hold of you, and what's the best way to reach you? Okay, um, that's great. I mean, I would say, um, you know what? 
I made a choice years ago that uh, ascension is a personal word, like a power word, like how people used to scream Xena back in the day, like women were like Xena and like do that. And so ascension was mine. Um, and, it, and it's it's not the Catholic idea. It's more about climbing a mountain type of idea. It's, it's about uh, growing taller and higher and doing what you can for the sake of doing what you can and, and trying to test your limits. But unfortunately, no one can spell ascension. So I won't point you guys there. Um, what I'll probably do is say, um, ch check me out on uh, Tower Props, P-R-O-P-S, like properties, but short, um, towerprops.com for ta tower property management. And I am at justin at towerprops.com, T-O-W-E-R-P-R-O-P-S.com. That's probably the best way to, to get a hold of me in, in a lot of regards, especially with property management and everything like that. But um, Ascension, I want to keep the name. It's just a heck, it's a hard, hard one to spell. So I'm not going to pose everyone to try it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, we'll also put that in the show notes too, so you can reach out to Justin. But I would assume if you just Google Tower Property Management Austin, it's probably going to pop right up. So if you're looking for a property manager in Austin, Tower Property Management Austin on Google or just towerprops.com and that'll get you right to them. All right, Justin, last question here. Most important question we ask is what is your favorite restaurant in Austin? Oh, um, oh, great question. Um, there is a place in South Austin that I've seen evolve over time. Um, I used to go there during college um, it's in, it's in Oak Hill and I live in Oak Hill, which is the arm, the redneck armpit of Austin. And I hope it stays that way for as long as it possibly can be. There's a, like, you know, barbecue joint, Mexican joint, barbecue joint, Mexican joint. Uh, like there's no Italian whatsoever, but um, it, it's, it's turning around though. It's becoming a luxury area, but um, there's a restaurant that I used to go to. It was a hole in the wall Mexican joint uh, called Flores. And they, they were where the current Via 313 is right now. Um, but they moved for a better location because they started expanding. But Flores Mexican Restaurant, that's my home. I hope you people hear this if y'all are listening. Uh, I, I used to sit up at the bar and read real estate books and do my classes. And I would just go up and, and hang out. And uh, now they have like this really cool outdoor area that's, you know, with COVID, they grabbed, they grabbed it by the reins. They enhanced their outdoor area. They created shade overhangs you know covered patio and there's a park right there that's enclosed and i can go let my kids go play i can drink great margaritas and eat eat uh my favorite dish over there which is the pollo caliente which is a uh a, a cooked chicken with a chipotle sauce on it it's beautiful i hope you try it out yeah no i, I might make it a, make it a plug for them <laughs> oh dude go for it uh you can't go wrong um but yeah, that's that's my South Austin place that I really enjoy. It's it's my cheers. Everyone knows my name. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on here today, Justin. Again, guys, if you're looking for a property manager in Austin, it's Tower Property Management, towerprops.com, and Justin at towerprops.com. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. We will talk soon. Sounds great, man. Catch you in the hallway. All right, sounds good. <laughs>